Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 126. I had 125. Right. <laughs> it is 126. You had 125 in the pool. Track anymore. <laughs> it's so many. Once we got over 100, I it's know. just <laughs> so many. <laughs> They're all the same. Um, how was your nap? <laughs> Oh, it was lovely. How was Good. your nap? <laughs> it was it was a half a nap. It was a half nap. It was mine like, was, it was also a closed eyes and then ten minutes later it was like, oh okay. Yeah, mine was about a half nap too. Yeah. I I texted Jen like 30 minutes before we're supposed to start. Nope, closer to 20 minutes. And I was just like, Can we start a little bit late? I need a power nap. And then she just texted me back, dude. And I was like, oh, no, she's going to be like, Sally, stop pushing back the time on me. This is the time when Jen is going to be like, Sally, you just you always need to do things later. Change the time around. I don't know why I thought all of a sudden like you were going to be like. Change I, personalities completely. Exactly. Like, I'm done with this. I'm done with your bullshit. Sally, I never liked you. I've never liked you. I hate lazy. this podcast. <laughs> never in the middle of the day. So I was just like. Okay, I guess I, I don't need a nap. And then and then after the dude da da da, she just sends me a picture of her under her covers. <laughs> I was like, I need a nap too. I was sitting there hoping and wishing that Sally would text me and say, Can we start a little late? <laughs> and I and did. All of my dreams came true. You know me. There is not a time that I will not push. <laughs> And that's why I love you. <laughs> and then I then it was great. It was a great little nap. And now here we are. How's your week? Pretty good. Pretty good, Sally. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> nothing nothing too crazy, which is good. Yeah. It's um, you know, the my kids right now are at their dad's house. It's very quiet over here. Yeah. Just taking naps in the middle of the day. I don't know what to do with myself. I mean, it's that's amazing, right? <laughs> Just yeah. the act of being alone in your house at any time during the day. Yeah. It's lovely. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, well, listen, because we pushed this back, I my child is going to be home sooner rather than later. So, so let's get this show on the road, y'all. Okay. You're starting this week. Oh, I am. Let's get into our quickies. Okay, Jen, I haven't done this to you in a while. Uh, so I'm going to give you a quickie about birds. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, this I got from the Good News Network by McKinley Corbley. Um, so this 56-year-old Seattle man named Stuart Dahlquist didn't know that when he rescued two baby crow chicks two years ago that it was going to turn into a lasting friendship. So he told this website called The Dodo that he loved listening to the baby birds like chirp with their parents when they were being fed. Um, and so he went outside one day and heard the two little crows chirping and he saw them on the ground. He said he knew he had to help. So although I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, I've I've always thought that was the general rule is do not no no touching. No touch. Don't touch it. Like they're just maybe they're just like trying to fly. The parents will get them back up. Uh either way, he did he did not follow that. He scooped the chips chicks up, put them back in the nest. Uh he even left out food and water at the base of the tree in case they fell out a second time. And so soon it became a ritual. So like every day for several years, he would throw bird food out into his front yard for this family of four birds and the crows apparently took notice because uh, one day Stuart was preparing to like put the food out and he found this fir sprig like from a fir tree that had been decorated with a soda can tab and it was like in the exact same spot where he fed the crow and he said I noticed it straight away because I'm kind of sensitive about trash going where it belongs but the pull tab being threaded onto the sprig of fur wasn't normal and I hung on to it so he didn't think anything about it really at first but then the next day he got a second 
branch with the soda tab on it. And he saw the crows like nearby it. And so he was like, I think that the crows are leaving me gifts because I have been feeding them for two years. Oh. Yeah. So he says, this is not only generous, it's creative, it's art. My mind is blown. (laughs) What if he was like, you guys, I don't like these things. (laughs) I'm really sensitive about trash. What am I supposed to do (laughs) with a fur branch and a soda tab? (laughs) Give better gifts. I've been feeding you for two years and you're giving me this shit, my own trash and like a branch from my garbage. Um, so he put this on Twitter of like these his gifts and um and of course like people shared it. And this behavioral ecologist, Jennifer Campbell Smith, um, told the Audubon Society, I'm very skeptical of random internet sources, but knowing these birds and how intelligent they are, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, and then she said, this is, I find this very funny. She was like, it's still an amazing example of the way crows are really watching us and are mindful of us and in their own way, our data mining for Ready the best. Ready to eat us. <laughs> Basically, our data mining for the best way to manipulate us. <laughs> She's like, oh yeah, they might be giving you those things. Isn't that because you're friends? It's because they know where the food comes from. <laughs> oh my God. So Stuart says he maintained a close relationship with the ba- with the bird family since the incident. And then he also told the Audubon Society that he was going to get a tattoo of a crow. He said, they follow along when I take walk, landing along the wires along the way. The adult male is very amiable and will fly sometimes within a few feet, swooping it by to say, here I am. <laughs> That's the Aww. end of the story. Yeah. Here um, I am. Yeah. So anyway, so that's just a nice little bird story for you. Nice bird story. So, okay. So my quickie this week, remember how last week my quickie was about a a couple that Britain had dubbed Britain's unluckiest newlyweds? Yes. I loved that story. Well, I think that I found the United States's <laughs> definitely correct. That's definitely the way to say it. Is that it. how you say it? United <laughs> States is um, um, <laughs> most unlucky couple. Yes. I'm excited and, for this. <laughs> yes. Um, so this article came from people.com written by Joelle Goldstein. And it is about a North Carolina couple, Christine and Gannon Carmeyer, who have been planning their wedding for quite some time. They were actually supposed to wed in September of 2020, but as you know, everybody had to postpone their weddings due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then- I've heard of it. Do, do you know? I do. <laughs> I've heard. COVID. I don't brag. And then they ended up getting married with just the immediate family in their backyard in July of 2020. And then they rescheduled their to have their ceremony and their the wedding in um September of 2021. Mm-hmm. But then just one week before the wedding, Christine ended up testing positive for oh, COVID. No. I know. And then they had to postpone their wedding date again. Ugh. So then they planned their wedding for November of this year. But then right before the wedding, the day of the wedding, actually, K- Gannon, the the groom, ended up getting food poisoning. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. Poor guy. Poor I know. Guy. They, they said that he seemed sick at first, but not that sick to where he needed to go to a doctor or anything until it was just hours before the wedding where it, he was undeniably very unwell. He ended up having actually having to go to the hospital. He ended, it was like severe food yeah. poisoning. So he went to the hospital, but because the wedding was already planned and everything and everybody was there, they had already pushed their wedding back. This would be like the third time that they pushed their wedding back. They decided to go ahead and have the wedding, even though the groom was in the hospital. <laughs> When one of the owners of the Victorian, which is the venue where they were having their wedding, came with up with this idea to make a stick Gannon. He thought it would be funny. So what they did is they took a rolling steamer and some pool cues, and then they put a suit on it. Oh. <laughs> and I then they had an iPad mounted to the top of it with Gannon's face so that he could... I like I can't tell if it was just a picture of his face or if it was like if he was from the hospital yeah witnessing everything like via FaceTime. It's oh, really man. kind of unclear in the 
article. But I hope they it's bas- via FaceTime because that's hilarious. Yeah. So they basically <laughs> everybody took turns like rolling around this stick cannon and um, you know <laughs> dancing with it and partying with it while poor Gannon was actually in the hospital. But they ended up putting it on um, on the Victorian which is the venue they posted it on their TikTok yeah. and it went like super viral with like, you know, 2,400 shares and 57,000 likes, which was a shock to Christine and Gannon because neither of them are like on social media. And so they couldn't believe all of the like attention that they were getting. They ended up getting both positive attention and also negative attention because some people thought that it was um, like crazy that they were that they, she had the wedding without him, you know? Um, but, I mean, what are you And that do? she wasn't with him. But the thing is, is that because of the current visitor policies at their hospital, Christine couldn't have gone anyway. Yeah. You know, so there was nothing that she could do. And I have to imagine he time. was like, please go ahead and do it. Everybody's yeah. here. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. I mean, I yes, it's unfortunate, but also like, I have to imagine that he, it was his idea. Yeah, and he said that he told People Magazine, I'm so glad that our friends and family still got to enjoy time with her, meaning his his wife, and the events that they worked so hard to plan and that it didn't go to waste. Yeah. So Christine said, um, seeing as this is now our third iteration of our wedding plans, we do not foresee another ceremony or reception. We are just so thankful that we are both now healthy and we hope to save up for an extended honeymoon in the future and continue to make memories together. She said, we've been together for almost eight years and in that time um, have learned a lot about what makes a relationship. And let me tell you, it's not about having a party. We will cherish the memories of our small family ceremony and continue to laugh at the debacle the situation turned out to be. And one day we look forward to telling our kids this whole wedding saga. I so, love that. Yeah, I, I love that. That is like such a good, uh, like, I feel like that's a good sign for them, you know? It's like, yeah. You you dealt with this shit. You can deal with a lot of shit. <laughs> like, I remember when my aunt Teresa and Uncle Mike got married. Um, I was a kid. I was like a junior bridesmaid. I think it was like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, and um, oh, I would love to see and, pictures of that. Oh. <laughs> Caroline, Caroline, if you Caroline, have pic- <laughs> if you have any pictures, send them my way. Teresa, Mary. <laughs> Do you have picture? It's a lot of – I'll just tell you there's a lot of hair, a lot of hairspray. I can only imagine. A lot. (laughs) Um, A Long Island wedding. Um, But my Uncle Mike got food poisoning the day of the wedding. And they still had the wedding, but he was so sick. And I remember like at one point he was so sick he could barely stand. And one of my cousins like ran up to him and like, you know, he's a little guy. And he punched him like right in the face. (laughs) (laughs) be like snap out of it (laughs) no just like just being a wild child and like one thing something happened and then he just like punched him in the face (laughs) he was having the worst day but you know what they're still married and now their children are like grown adults and um my cousin, yeah, my cousin Kyle, their uh, their son, and he's like a grown man now, and they've been together this whole time, happily married. So the worse the wedding, the better the marriage, just like we said last time. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I feel like that this is like prime. This this story is prime for motherfucking Steve Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> to jump in. Give these two crazy kids a beautiful honeymoon, right? Come on. I feel like Steve's probably already on it. All right. If anybody works for Steve Harvey, well, first of all, book us. Obviously, we need to meet him. Second of all, get these kids on Steve Harvey. Give them a beautiful, beautiful honeymoon. Let's all petition. You know, the Burger King – I'm still very bitter about the Burger King (laughs) couple. They got a free fucking wedding. They didn't do shit except for have last names. That's all they did. (laughs) These people – Went through it. They have and suffered. They deserve a Steve Harvey, Harvey Walt Disney World wedding. <laughs> That's what they want. If they're into it, if they yeah. like Disney, World. gonna say not for me. But if it's for you, go for it. For some people, it's for John Stamos. Oh, it could John be for them Stamos. too. I know. <laughs> Maybe they could get John Stamos there too. Ugh. Ugh. Wouldn't we all enjoy a little John Stamos? I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we would. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. I love that so much. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a wild story? I am. This one is wild. It's so wild that like I can't even touch some parts of it. So I'm going to – Really? Yes. I'm going to uh, encourage you to go read um, this article called The Notorious Mrs. Mosler um, from the Texas Monthly. It's by Skip Hollinsworth, which I think we've definitely Why told do I stories. Know this name? He's written – he's like a, written lots of big investigative true crime stuff. I, I think he's – we've probably done stories with him before. I think you've probably heard him on different podcasts. But it's really great. It's It goes into all the stuff. Um, I also got my information from the Miami New Times by Bill Cook, from Wikipedia, from the Washington Post by Tom Curtis, and another um, great like long-form article in the Houston Press by Randall Patterson. I will also direct you to that. Okay. So this week, I'm doing the 1964 murder trial that the Miami News Times described as one of America's most unbelievable criminal cases, one that created its own tabloid frenzy with an equally unbelievable ending. Oh, wow. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. And not to so build it intrigued. up. <laughs> not to build it up too much. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So Candace Weatherby was born in 1920. She was the sixth of 12 kids born in Buchanan, Georgia, which is just about an hour west of Atlanta. Her father was a farmer. They grew up very poor. When Candace was 12, her mother died during childbirth. And that like kind of caused her father to start drinking. He suffered a breakdown. He actually moved out of Buchanan and like started a new life in like a town over with another woman. And he left like all of the younger children with relatives. So Candace basically raised herself and her younger siblings. So when she got to high school, everyone was encouraging her to find a husband. She was like a beautiful young woman. And that was what young women did in the 1930s mm-hmm. and 40s. So she ended up marrying this this family friend who was 10 years older than her named Norman Johnson when she was just 19. And then she moved to his like small town in Alabama with him. And then a year later, she gave birth to their first son, Norman Jr. And Candace was always described as like very bubbly. She was theatrical. Everybody always noticed her. She was like not a person who could just be content sitting around. So um, obviously, she, at that time, she was not getting a job, but she joined the USO and she started hosting parties for these young soldiers at Fort Benning. And apparently, at one of those functions, she met the son of John D. Rockefeller and they became close. That was like kind of in quotes, close. And uh, when Candace gave birth to her second child, Rita, she gave Rita the mil- middle name of Rockefeller. And it was mm. rumored that he, the John Rockefeller's son was actually Rita's father. Oh, wow. But she never confirmed that. It's just a rumor. She was gorgeous. She was like a Dolly Parton, Marilyn Monroe type. She was blonde. She was tiny. She had big boobs. She had like Southern charm just like oozing from her pores, you know? And she had this like kind of- relate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's like you and me. Exactly. (laughs) It's like- Just like a teeny little, like a little baby voice, like, hey, y'all. So after her daughter Rita was born, the family moved to New Orleans so that Norman could take a job. But within a year or two after they moved there, they their marriage went south. They got a divorce. And he ended up taking a job in Colorado. So now she's – it's the mid-1940s. Candace is single. She has two young children. And she decides that she is going to start a modeling career. And – like she actually does it. She gets like jobs modeling for our local department stores. She ends up going to New York City to take classes at the Barbizon School. <gasps> Barbizon, right? I remember Barbizon. <laughs> I feel like or is this Barbizon the people that like you know you're walking down the street and someone's like, hey, it pretends to be a model scout and like hands you a card. Did that ever yeah. happen to you? We had. Um, <laughs> was that here too? But I remember there being a John Casablanca's and a Barbizon were the yes. two like. Yeah, everybody got scouted. They they never approached me. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Chicago. Like this was – I mean, I was probably 23 or 24 and I was like working and I was in, you know, the building where I was working. And I I mean, I just very like – this woman came up to me and she's like, you just have such good style. I think you You definitely be a model. I was just – I couldn't, Jed. And I was just like, 
first of all, I'm in like business cash. Like I'm not, you know, there was nothing stylish or modely about me. And I was just like, I feel like this is a scam, but also thank you. <laughs> I had like the Rachel cut, you know, there was nothing. Whatever. Nothing modely. You're gorgeous. Thank you. That's all you I wanted. Been, I could have been someone. Been I would yes. have approached you if I was a fake modeling scam lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so she actually, she goes, she takes his classes at the Barbizon School. And then when she comes back to New Orleans, she ends up setting up her own modeling agency. And wow. it's also like a finishing school, you know? So it's like, I'll teach, we'll teach you manners and then also how to model. And so, um, and it was pretty successful. She became part of the New Orleans high society art scene. And it didn't seem to matter that there were kind of open rumors that Candy's success wasn't all from her modeling agency. Actually, she was running, she did have a modeling agency, but she was also running like a group of sex workers out of her home. Oh. Yeah. So like those kind of models. Yes. So like young soldiers would come back for more and they would come to her house and sign up for dance classes and then they'd be paired up with a female partner they'd dance and then they'd go to one of the bedrooms and then she would because it was a class the soldier could use his GI bill benefits to pay for his lessons so basically she was taking GI bill money for them to have sex with a sex worker under the guise of it was it was a class lesson. yeah i would just oh. think it's kind of ingenious yeah so it she is, is it is a dance it <laughs> <laughs> the the forbidden dance, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's Lombada. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think both can be true. <laughs> um, so she took a volunteer position with the New Orleans Opera, and as part of that, she would go and meet like wealthy businessmen and and ask for donations and you know kind of get money for the opera. So. One of the the people that she was tasked with going to ask money from was this man named Jacques Mosler. So his name was Jacques. Everyone called him Jack. Um, he was a wealthy bank owner. It's, I'm kind of it's kind of unclear exactly what he did, but you know he had a, he had money. He had a lot of money. He had been born in Romania, but he had mm-hmm. moved to Buffalo, New York, with his family when he was a kid. And then as a young man, he had moved to New Orleans and he had started a car dealership. And there were reports that he was kind of like a shady dealer. Like at one point he was arrested for stealing a car from like a doctor's parking lot and it was found at his dealership, but it's not clear that he was ever actually, like he was arrested, but not convicted of that. Mm-hmm. He served in World War One, And then when he got home from the war, he sold the dealership and basically became a loan shark. So he would like give loans to poor people for very high interest rates. And then eventually he started investing in banks and insurance companies. So by the time that Candace met him, he was very wealthy. Jack had four daughters. He had recently divorced his wife of 30 years. And so when they met, Candy was 27 and Jack was 52. And Candy went in and she asked Jack for a donation for the opera. And he initially wrote her a check for $25. And he was like, I'm bored by the opera. But the story is that she was so persuasive that she left that day with a check for $350 and a date. And was she like, it's not really the opera. We're going to have sex. (laughs) She was like, I know we're saying everything was like in quotation marks. We're going to the opera. It's all set. And then he was like, sold. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you meant actually the opera. No. Uh, so they fell in love. And then two years after they met, they ended up getting married. And then soon after their marriage in 1950, the couple moved to Houston where Jack's business was based. And apparently in the 1950s, Houston was like swimming in rich people. And... Um, Jack and Candy quickly made their way to the top of the social ladder. They built, basically built like a castle. Like he built her a castle in River Oaks, which I think we've talked about before is like a very schmancy neighborhood, like Mm -hmm. the fanciest neighborhood. I feel like Diane Gallagher could confirm that for us. But um, so it was like staffed with maids and cooks and butlers, gardeners, handymen, a chauffeur. They had like seven luxury cars. They too, they like... They gave tons of money to charities, like, and Candy would host fundraisers, and people would come to the her fundraisers just to see her because she was just really fabulous, you know. And uh, this woman who used to go to their parties, named Joan Schnitzer, 
told the Texas Monthly, none of us knew anything about her, but as far as we could tell, she didn't have a mean bone in her body. She was fun and flirty. All she had to do was touch an older gentleman on the arm and say, I really love your tie, and you could just see him melt. And apparently the rumors about Candy's past, like running the dance, I'm doing quotes, <laughs> the dance studio, um, like got to Houston and people mostly just ignored it or thought it was like, maybe it made her more interesting, you know? And she was also like just so philanthropic that people felt like it was hard to believe anything bad about her. Mm -hmm. So in 1957, Jack read a story. He was like in Chicago for business and he read a story in the paper about four kids aged two through six whose father had killed their mother mm -hmm. and were left with no one to care for them. And Jack called Candy and was like, I think we should adopt those kids. So mine, like they have, he has four kids. She has two kids. Although most of their wow. kids are like mostly grown at this point or like kind of older. So um, she immediately got on a flight to Chicago and then she and Jack were actually able to like sign the adoption paperwork while they were there and they brought these kids home. And and so and Candy was like known to just like dote on her children. Like she built a baseball field for them. She once told reporters, they're my life, my entire world. People can work hard and accomplish a lot of things, but it's useless without children to love. So no one was really surprised when the couple who was obviously known to be caring and in incredibly charitable, like ended up taking in a relative in 1961. It was Candy's 20-year-old nephew named Mel Powers. So Candy's sister, Babe, had called and said, I need help because Mel, who had kind of been always been a lot of in and out of trouble in his life, had been thrown in jail for convincing an 89-year-old man to buy $20,000 worth of stock in a fake company. And he had gone to jail for about three months. And Candy's sister asked, like, can he, when he gets out of jail, can he please come to Houston, live with you, and start over? So Mel came to Houston. Jack ended up giving him a job at one of his loan companies. Candy gave him a car to drive. And Mel did really well. He did really well at the job. He was this tall guy. He was muscular. He was handsome. He was young. Everybody thought he was like easy to get along with. Everything seemed to be going fine. About a year and a half after he came to Houston, all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, Jack fired Mel and banned him from the house. Like, there were reports of bodyguards escorting him from the home. People saw this happening. And like immediately after, Jack left to go to the couple's apartment in Key Biscayne, Florida. Mm -hmm. So everybody was kind of curious about what happened. And Candy was like, look, it's not so dramatic. Mel wasn't actually fired. He was simply leaving to start his own business. And Jack had actually gone to Florida to open a new bank. So that's why he's gone. And like, but rumors were like swirling that something had gone on and Jack and Candy were actually separated. And it wasn't actually until a year later, like a full year that Candy and their four youngest kids went to Florida to join Jack. And so, and to the outside, like when she's there, things to seem to be okay with the family. Like they're playing on the beach during the day. But Candy, who like always had bad migraines, started feeling sick. Mm. And so four times during their visit, she ended up going to the hospital for migraine treatments. And on June 30th, Candy started feeling a migraine coming on. She had all four kids with her. And since it was so late, she took the kids to get dinner. And then they came with her to the hospital so she could get an injection to help with her pain. And it was about 4.30 a.m. when they finally got back to the apartment. When the kids come running in, they found Jack. He was lying on the floor, wrapped in a blanket. And he was dead from being hit with a blunt object and stabbed 39 times around his heart and oh lungs. Oh, my God. I know. What is so sad about this story is just those poor kids. Their biological father killed their mother. Mm -hmm. And then now here they're, it's like, they're like seeing another murder. Yeah. Like it's just – I can't imagine how traumatized they were. But anyway, so when police arrived at the scene, Candy told them that Jack's wallet and several hundred dollar bills were missing from the bathroom counter, as well as her gold wristwatch. So, like, initially, police were like, it's a robbery, right? And plus, you know, Jack was very wealthy, and he was often, like, cutthroat. Like, he was known to have a lot of enemies. So police questioned Candy about who could have done this, and she also told them that she had long suspected that her husband was gay and that people often told her, like, that he invited young men back to their apartment in Florida when she wasn't there. Hmm. 
And so police believe Candy and and most people did. Like, I, I mean, people found her. She was like very sweet and wide eyed and believable. So like at Jack's funeral in Miami, she was like in the front row. She was surrounded by all of their eight children. She's like weeping quietly afterwards. She and the kids flew to Washington, D.C., where Jack was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. But police didn't believe Candy for too long because obviously the death of this wealthy businessman was huge news. And soon Miami police were getting calls from people in Houston who were like, "Mm, I don't think you have the whole story. Because people were reporting that Jack had actually kicked Mel out because a member of the household staff had caught Candy and Mel getting it on. Oh, really? Yeah. So Candy and Dance her 22-year-old – Yeah. her It's Candy and her 22-year-old nephew – Wow. – had been having an affair. Wow. Like blood-related nephew? Yeah. Her sister's kid. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So like that's gross. Yes. And then also equally gross is that – Mel, during that time, apparently underwent four different operations, um, supposedly because Candy asked him to. He was circumcised. His tonsils were removed. His ears were cosmetically adjusted to, like, lie flatter against his head. Mm-hmm. And he also – he had, like, a bunch of, like, pockmark scars. And so he had his face sanded down. So basically she was like, uh, get a makeover and then we could do it. Oh, my God. Yeah, so detectives, once they learned that the two were having an affair, they theorized that Candy and Mel decided to kill Jock so that they could get his money. Because apparently, if she divorced him, she would only get $200,000, whereas he was worth like millions and millions. Mm-hmm. So this former society columnist, Betsy Parrish, said it was like a great trashy novel come to life. Candace was beautiful. She lived in this great mansion. She gave away money to worthy causes. She had all these children she adored. She had everything she could possibly want. And then the police announced that she and her lover boy nephew, nephew were cold-blooded killers. You could have knocked River Oaks over with a feather. Oh, my God. So detectives discovered that on the afternoon of June 29th, Mel had arrived at the Houston airport and had purchased a one-way ticket to Miami. So he was carrying just a briefcase. That's all he had for luggage. He came to Miami. He checked into a hotel, and he went to the hotel bar and asked for an empty glass soda bottle and then left with it in his hand. And then he didn't return again until 1 a.m., which was like closing time, and he ordered a double scotch. And then by the time that Candy was called the police around 4.30 to report the murder, he was already back at the Miami airport and had purchased a one-way ticket back to Houston. So police find Mel. They question him. And he was like, I I wasn't in Miami. But he also had no proof of where he had been. Um, He was wearing like a Miami Vice t-shirt and the fedora (laughs) was – Drinking a mojito. <laughs> it wasn't me. He he tipped down his shades and was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, let me take off my, my shoulder pads. <laughs> so he he was arrested immediately, charged with murder, and police searched his office and they found photos of him and Candy like snuggling up at a nightclub, and they found love letters from Candy to Mel. Um so Candy, meanwhile, claimed she would, like she maintained her innocence. She said that the idea that she and Mel were having an affair was absurd. She said they had been with a group of friends at a nightclub when the photo was taken. She was like, we weren't like cuddling up. We were just squeezing in to get a photo. And then she said that the letters, she was like, that's the way I write to everyone among my family and friends. Like, that's, I'm just a very affectionate gal, you know? Mm-hmm. And police also couldn't find anything to tie her to the murder. So... For a year, Mel was in jail. Candy remained free. Um, and then a year after his death, Candy and her kids flew to Arlington Cemetery to visit Jack's grave. And she hired a photographer to take pictures of them, like mourning. And then she sent those photos to news agencies, which just seemed to spur the police to take action. Yeah. You know? Like this is like so shortly after the publicity stunt, she was arrested and also charged with Jack's murder. So the trial started in January of 1966, and it was a sensation. Everybody was like, it was the OJ of that day. Like that, it was so huge. 
People flooded the courtroom. Everybody was like waiting outside to get a glimpse of her. When she stepped out of the car, it was like she was a movie star because there were so many flashbulbs going off. And like to some women, she was kind of like a hero. Mm -hmm. So she would wave and blow kisses to people. So the prosecutor basically told the jury that Candy had seduced Mel. She had made him believe she was in love with him and then persuaded him to fly to Miami to murder her husband. And while she and her children were like conveniently at the hospital, which gave her the perfect alibi, he said Mel did the dirty work, but that basically he was motivated by, he said, his insatiable desire for this woman. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Candy and Mel were represented by this famous defense attorney, because of course they're very rich, named Percy Foreman, who used to boast that he won acquittals for at least 300 accused murderers, many of whom had clear evidence stacked against him. So his strategy was, I think, what happens a lot, was to put Jack on trial, like put the victim on trial. So he told the jury that Jack had so many enemies. He was like, he kept an ax next to his bed. He brought up all of the rumors about Jack frequenting gay bars. He brought witnesses that said they had seen Jack near shirtless young men. Um, Like all innuendo, which was like very, of course, very salacious for the time, right? Mm -hmm. So the prosecutor brought witnesses that said they'd seen Candy and Mel together in a way that seemed too close for relatives. And like, even though they didn't have any direct evidence to tie them to the murder, the prosecutor did bring in five different people who said that they had been asked at one time or another by either Candy or Mel to kill Jack. So, which would be very damning, you know, if they're like had been trying to solicit murder before. But the problem was that like most of these people were super sketchy. Their stories seemed far-fetched or some of them just seemed outright false. Like it just seemed crazy for the prosecutor to put them on the stand. Mm Mm-hmm. So when the jury went to deliberate, they they returned to the courtroom um, after three days to deliver their verdict. And a jury, of course, was made up of all men. And one of the lawyers said the juries couldn't take their eyes off her. There were some courtroom observers who later said they believed the trial was over the moment Candace took a seat in the courtroom and crossed her legs. So they found Candy and Mel not guilty. Not guilty? Yep. Wow. Yeah. So like I like after the trial, she was like, thank you. She went and she kissed every single one of the jurors like, thank you so much. So after the trial, despite maintaining that they were not involved with each other, Mel and Candy continued to be together for several years. Uh, They went back to Houston and, uh, you know, Candy kept stirring up press. She like continued to run Jack's business and Mel got into real estate, which apparently he was pretty good at. And, like, Candy just was, like, she's, like, not – wouldn't – like, the society, high society in Houston, like, kind of shunned her. But she just was, like, fuck you guys. Like, I don't care. I'm going to keep being who I am. Mm -hmm. And eventually she and Mel went their separate ways. Candy at one point dated Chuck Berry. Really? Yeah. She, like, dated all these high-profile people. And then in 1971, when she was 51, she got married to a 32-year-old nightclub owner named Barnett Garrison. And the two seemed pretty happy together. But then Candy learned that Barnett was going to this go-go dancer nightclub most nights. And on one night after the club was closed, it burned to the ground. And Houston Fire Department investigators, after investigating, they were like, we think Candace is behind this. But they didn't have enough evidence to arrest her. So years later, this reporter asked her about it. And supposedly she just like waved a hand in the air, was like, well, I certainly would understand doing such a thing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And then in August of 1972, a little more than a year after their wedding, Barnett Garrison was found face down in a pool of blood on the mansion's stone patio. His his uh, nine millimeter pistol, which he always carried with him in a zippered case, was beside him. They noticed like scuff marks on the roof of his three of the three story home, so it looked like he had fallen off the roof and like mm-hmm. plunged forty feet. He had a collapsed lung, broken ribs, a laceration on his head. He was still alive. Oh my barely. god! Yeah. So police immediately are looking for Candy. She was locked in her room, but she was like completely incoherent. Um, the co- the detectives tried to question her, but they were like, she was either on medication or highly intoxicated. 
And so people who knew the couple were like, I think they were drinking and fighting. She locked herself in the bedroom that Barnett had stormed off to go to one of his clubs and he had returned super drunk. All the doors were locked and he didn't have any keys. They thought that he had maybe gone up to like try to get to Candace's room um, and then somehow gotten on the roof and then fallen off. It's very unclear, but that was like the theory um, it was ruled as accidental. However, one of Candy's relatives told a reporter that Candy had actually paid two of her cousins to beat Barnett up after she discovered he was cheating on her. The reporter said, what I was told was after the after Barnett got punched, he was still kind of belligerent, really tough as hell. So they ice picked him in the ear, took him <gasps> up to the roof, and oh my threw him God. off. Oh my God. I know. God. Sorry. Ugh. Sorry, I should have warned you before I said that. That's rough. Yeah. So Barnett was taken to the hospital. For six weeks, he lay in a coma, but he recovered. Um, And when he emerged, Candace was, like, thrilled. She bought, like, a Cadillac and a Ferrari for the doctors. And Barnett couldn't remember anything. He didn't even remember being married to Candy. Like, he remembered where he went to college, and that was, like, it. He was pretty severely brain damaged. He ended up moving back to his parents' house, and then his parents would not let Candy see him. And then after his parents passed away, he eventually ended up in a nursing home. So Candy ended up filing for divorce in 1974. Wait, Candy filed for divorce from him? Yes, she ended up filing for divorce from him in 1974 because his parents wouldn't let her see him. Okay. Because they suspected that she tried to murder him. Um. So in 1976, an article an article came out in Esquire where Candy basically said, like, she wasn't angry about being accused of Jack's murder. She said, we all have our sorrows and our heartaches, but we have to put that bridge behind you. I used to say to Judy Garland, you've got to be like a cat, Judy. You've got to learn to land on your feet in this world. <laughs> Wait, who said this? Candy said this. Oh, she used to say to Judy Garland, this? yeah, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, Candy, okay, Candy, as I used to say to Judy Garland. Um, so in as October, I used to say to my best friend, <laughs> Barack National <Obama>. Treasure, <laughs> Judy Garland, Barack, you got to lead this country, you got to give this country hope. <laughs> um, so. In October of 1976, just three months after the Esquire article was published, Candy flew from Houston to Miami to go to a board of directors meeting for the bank that she now ran. Uh, She checked into a suite um, at a hotel. She called her doctor, telling him she had a violent headache. So he came to the hotel. He gave her an injection of Demerol, uh, which is a painkiller, and Finagrin, which is a sedative. Apparently, the doctor didn't know that she had actually already taken um, a rabituate that is designed to treat insomnia. Mm-hmm. And so the next morning, her secretary found her. She had died of an overdose, apparently due to all of the everything together, <laughs> like the combination wow. of all of those drugs. Um, she it. was, yeah, she was 62 years old. And a write-up about her death in the Washington Post said. Mosler earned a kind of grudging appreciation for being herself. She wasn't just a person. She was a bigger-than-life phenomenon, a poor girl from Buchanan, Georgia, who made it big, a kind of country music queen without the music, but with all the grand gestures, spectacular costumes, elemental passions, and sentiments that are their stock and trade. So at her funeral, only two of her children, her biological daughter, Rita, and then the youngest of the four adopted children, Edward, showed up to her funeral. There's like a whole saga with her children that you should read about. Um, But to like everyone's surprise, Mel showed up accompanied by his latest girlfriend. But Candy wasn't actually buried in Houston. She had instructed the executives of her estate to have her body shipped to Arlington National Cemetery and buried beside her second husband, Jack Mosler. She said she wanted to spend eternity next to the man she loved. Okay. That's crazy. So by the time that Candy had died, Mel, like he had been in real estate. He was rich all his own. He owned buildings in Houston. He had built himself like a 20,000 square foot penthouse that had this is so like 70s, early 1980s, mirrored ceilings in the bedroom, a weight room, a rooftop swimming pool, a pad for his helicopter. Mm -hmm. Um, 
during the 80s, he like ended up uh, losing almost everything and ended up in bankruptcy, but he eventually did make a comeback. He died in 2010 at the age of 68, and his autopsy report concluded that he died of a form of pneumonia, but listed a history of like prescription drug abuse. The coroner also noted that there was a prosthetic device implanted in Mel's penile shaft. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know if that's from candy or not, but <laughs> and so I don't really have time. I was just like, here, take this. <laughs> um, when you were sleeping, well, you sleep it. Take this up there. Yeah. Um, I this is like another just crazy part of the story, but. There is this wild article in the Houston Press about what happened to her third husband, Barnett, the one that fell off the roof Uh um, after he ended up in the nursing home. So basically this like elderly woman who worked as a receptionist at the nursing home says that they fell in love with each other, even though doctors like he had no capacity to do that or make Mm -hmm. any kind of decisions. So at one point she like basically kidnapped him from the nursing home, took him to a courthouse, married him. What? And then eventually got caught and was like forced to bring him back and got like banned from him because he's like a ward of the state. So it's this crazy thing of this woman who was like delusional (gasps) and like stole him from his nursing home. This poor guy. Oh my God. Yes, this poor guy. Yeah. So anyway, isn't that a nuts story? That is. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe I've never heard that before. I know. I know. So that's, I doubt, I like, again, go read the article in Texas Monthly, which always has amazing articles. And then also, if you want to read about the um, being stole from the nursing home, that's in the Houston Press by Randall Patterson. Amazing. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. You ready for a love story? Always ready for a love story. Good. This is a nice one. Oh, uh, it's a nice happy town one. Um, it's so this is actually a holiday love story, um, and it's r- written by Francesca Street for CNN for their travel section called Chance Encounters, and it is about how an uninvited dinner guest turned out to be the man of someone's dreams. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> whose dreams? You'll find out. Um, so, in November of 1997, Dina Honor was um, hosting a Thanksgiving dinner for the first time in her New York City apartment. She lived in Brooklyn. She was 27 years old, and she decided to have. Uh, I'm sure you you lived in New York. I'm sure there were many friends. Givings, you yeah. know, in New York City thrown. She had actually had a tough year the year before. She had been in a bad relationship that she that was now over and she was suffering through she had suffered through depression. So yeah. it took her a long time. Um, she told CNN that I had slowly found my way back to a sense of normal and was not looking for love. So she was just focusing on hosting this holiday with her friends. There was a two-bedroom apartment that she shared with a roommate in Brooklyn, and her sister, who lived in Boston, came to visit. So she spent the day cooking, and then all of her friends that she had invited were all to bring additional dishes, you know, um, for the dinner. And so she was surprised when she opened the door, and she saw one person that she did invite who brought two people with him that she had no idea who they were. It's such a dude thing to do. It's such a dude thing. It reminds me of your story about your friend who's like, I might make it to your wedding. If I feel like it. I know. And so, um, yeah, such a dude. This guy brought two two other guys to the dinner. And she said, told CNN, I was not happy, but then I got a look at him and I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> so this person was 25 year old Richard Stegall, who was in town from, from Britain. He was on vacation in New York um, for the first time ever. He had actually come to New York with a good friend whose brother lived in New York city. So the brother was hosting them. And when they had, they were going to go out to dinner that night because Thanksgiving is in the thing in the UK. Right. Um, they woke up that day. Apparently they said that they got up late because they were out partying the night before. And when they went to go look, to get something to eat, they realized that all the restaurants were closed. Oh, right. Yeah. So the, the guy was like, well, I think I know where we could get some food. <laughs> this 
this really nice dinner that my friend kindly invited me to, and now I'll bring you guys along too. So this guy, Richard, was just kind of along for the ride. He was like, I guess I'm going to a party to get some food, but he didn't know that it was going to be like a formal Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Yeah, I had no idea. I'm sure the guy did. was like, it's fine. Yeah, it's a casual thing. (laughs) He said that as soon as like they uh, opened the door and he saw Dina's face, he realized that it was a total faux pas. But he said that as soon as he saw Dina, though, he said, from the start, I was entranced. Wow. Um, I know. And the feeling was mutual. She was very interested in him, too. She said, um, I thought he was very, very handsome. Can't make it up, right? The tall, dark stranger who comes to your door on Thanksgiving. Um, so she like invited them into the apartment, welcomed them to dinner. Her and Richard just couldn't help but just kind of connect with each other. Yeah. Uh, He said, I thought she was beautiful. To me, coming from London, she was this New York woman. She was strong, confident, sort of loud, but funny, just exuding life. And I was just smitten from the start. He actually hung back a little bit. Like he was so entranced by her and she was interested in him. But he said that he didn't really speak to her directly at first because he didn't want to disturb the hostess. By the time that dessert rolled around, she went up to him um, and gave him a slice of pumpkin pie, which he had actually never tried before being from the UK. And that's when they started talking. And so Dina, who loves literature, ended up dropping um, a Shakespeare reference into the conversation and he immediately picked up on it. And she said, it was like a little light came on. Not many guys you meet at a party in between beer and pumpkin pie are going to be happy about a conversation about Hamlet. And then, uh, uh, I know. And then they spent, <laughs> I mean, I don't know shit about Hamlet. But oh, no. I mean, I'd be like, I don't, this is, it'd be <laughs> lost on me. But I can imagine something like that where you're just like, oh, my God, you know yeah. what the, you're obsessed with the thing I'm obsessed with? Yeah. You like pizza? I like pizza. Uh, so you're they, hot and British? Okay, cool. fine. Fine. <laughs> they spent the rest of the night talking and Richard said, I think we had so much in common in our outlook on life and the things that were important to us as people and human beings and the way that we viewed the world and the way that um, – and the things that we wanted from life. So after they finished dinner, they ended up – everybody at the party ended up going to a bar. And then that's when her um, – Dina and Richard just sat at the end of a bar just talking to each other. And her sister, who came all the way from Boston, was really annoyed by that. <laughs> Uh, uh, Dina said we sat at the bar on bar stools facing one another and ignored everybody else we spent all night talking and all day the next day and so that Friday Richard had to go fly back to London and she actually went with him all the way to the subway station and said goodbye to him on the platform Um, and as she says that as the doors closed on the train, that's when she felt a sense of certainty. She said it was really something intuitive and instinctive. And as soon as she got back to her apartment, she told her sister, that's the man I'm going to marry. (gasps) I know. So now he's back in London and um, it's November and they didn't really know what was going to happen, but they kept talking to each other for a whole month, just daily long distance phone calls. And they would write each other letters sometimes, but They just had this relationship over the phone. So one night in the middle of December, um, he suggested to her, he said, uh, listen, why don't you come over to London for Christmas? And she wasn't so sure about that because she knew like Christmas is a big deal. And she didn't spend Thanksgiving with her family. She ignored her sister at the dinner. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She was like, they're going to kill me if I go all the way to London and spend Christmas with a man I just met. But she also just had this feeling. She said, I, I, she remembers thinking, I don't want to regret not doing this. If this is the chance, I don't want to miss out on it. And one day in December, she went to a travel agent and got a ticket to go to London. And she said that when she had the ticket in her hands, it, she told CNN, it was a commitment, a tangible thing. I think I was willing to take the chance, hoping that it would work out well, but also knowing that if it didn't, it wasn't going to be the end of my world. Yeah. She said that after her last breakup, she really took the time to work on herself and she knew that she was enough for herself, but was also open to finding love, which is great. Perfect. That is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, she said that even her family and friends were cautiously optimistic, she said. They supported her decision and they hoped the faith that she had in Richard was well-founded. 
I mean, what a romantic thing to like fly to London. I know. For Christmas. So when she got there, she got there on Christmas Day and at Heathrow Airport, he was there waiting for her. It was nine o'clock at night and he was holding a bouquet of flowers. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And um, so he had told his friends and family about, you know, this, you know, beautiful woman that he had met in New York, but he didn't really, they didn't know each other that long. So a lot of people didn't know a lot about what was happening. He said it all happened so quickly between November and December and with working, selling flowers and selling Christmas trees, I guess that was his job. He said the whole end of November and the whole of December, it's full on. It's sort of 20 hour days. So I guess like just working so much and then spending all this time talking to her. Yeah. Um, So in the UK, December 26th is uh, Boxing Day, which is their national holiday. And on Boxing Day morning, he ended up taking Dina to his parents' house. He introduced her to his family, and um, he left the room while they were talking. When he came back, it was like, as he said, she was holding court, like drinking and talking with the family, and they they immediately loved her. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. And he said, um, my parents were so happy that I met someone. It was clearly love from the start, and I think that they will tell you that they could completely see a change in me and see how happy I was. And so later that day, he ended up surprising Dina with a plane ticket. He told them that they were going to fly to the island of Mallorca in Spain with some of his friends for New Year's Eve. Like, how's that for a present? <laughs> this is like dream. Like, I this know. is a dream. <laughs> and so, um, so she, Ben, if you're listening, surprising with tickets to Mallorca. <laughs> Note to self. That's what I want. I, I can't believe nobody's done that for me. Right? Um, Come on. So she said that it was uh, an amazing trip, which I'm sure it was. But after the, you know, the amazing trip was over, she did have to go back to the U.S. But then he ended up booking a trip to go to New York at the end of January. And then she ended up going to London for Valentine's Day. So it's a, there was a lot of traveling that yeah. they did in a short amount of time. So then by the spring of 1998, Richard had actually left his job at the flower market that he was working at in London. And he ended up going to New York for three months. And he intended to spend the, the summer with Dina. It wasn't supposed to be permanent. But he said that when he said goodbye to his friends and family, that, he, that they knew. That yeah. that was it. He told CNN, the goodbyes that we had and some of the parties that were thrown had more of an air of finality about it than um, just a three-month thing. It was like sending him off to a new life. And so he showed up in New York with a green duffel bag full of his clothes, and he moved into Dina's apartment, the same one that he showed up to uninvited that one Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> and they spent the whole summer together walking around Central Park and East Village and talking about the future that they wanted to have together. And they said that they felt like they – could definitely be get married in the future, but they didn't want to get married at that point, even if it was a way to make sure that Richard could stay in the United States. Yeah. Dina said, I think we were both really clear that, yes, we want you to stay and we'll figure out a way to do that. And yes, maybe down the road there will be marriage, but those two things were very separate, I think, for the both of us. So Richard started looking for jobs that came with a visa and he ended up um, getting a role um, with – the United Nations. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay. That's lucky. <laughs> uh, Richard actually joked with CNN. When you tell the story to people, they can't quite believe that it's true. They think you're some spy working for the UN or something. But it was an amazing opportunity, obviously. And then they started to settle down together in New York. On New Year's Eve of 1999, Richard proposed to her and they got married in April of 2001 in New York um, at a venue called the Manhattan Penthouse on Fifth Avenue. Have you heard of it? No, I I haven't. haven't Is it in Queens? Um, No, but it sounds (laughs) glamorous. And so his British friends and family stayed. um, Does sound glamorous. Came into town and they all celebrated Dina said that we wanted to give our friends and family who were coming in, especially from London, but also where I grew up 
near Boston, a real New York experience. So we chose a place on the top floor with windows on all sides. So then after they got married, they went on an amazing honeymoon in Australia and they continued to live a life together in New York City. They ended up having two sons. um, And in 2008, their life took a new turn when they moved the whole family to Cyprus for Richard's United Nations work. So yeah. Which is also amazing. I know. And I'm so, like, who are these people? Right? I know. They said that when the opportunity came for them to relocate to Cyprus, that was right when they were starting to feel like they had outgrown their New York apartment. Mm-hmm. Richard said he was itching for a new adventure. So even though the decision to move all the way to Cyprus was not an easy one because their youngest son was only six months old at the time. Oh, um, wow. They said that even though there was a bit of culture shock at first, they ended up making great friends and embracing the Mediter- Mediterranean lifestyle. They loved watching their kids grow up among the beautiful scenery and sunshine. Richard said, I think it changed our mindset a lot about what kind of life we could have. And so um, – then they later moved to Copenhagen. And so now in now in 2021, they're both in Denmark and their kids are yeah. 17 and 13 years old. But they, you know, have been brought up all across Europe and love to travel as a family. And um, he still works for the UN. And Dina is an author and editor. And she just published a book called There's Someplace Like Home, Lessons from a Decade Abroad. Ah, yeah. I'd love to read that. I know. But even though it's been 10 years since they lived in the U.S., they still make sure that Thanksgiving is an important tradition for their family because that's where they met. And that's what the holiday that brought them all together. Dina said, the kids know the story. It's become part of our family lore. It's always a date in the calendar when we start to reflect in our lives and what's happened and everything and the whole story from start to finish. So. Ruthie. <laughs> Ruthie loves it. Oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just think so. They've been together ever since. And they said that this year in Copenhagen, they went out for dinner and reflected on what they're grateful for this Thanksgiving they did. And they um, said that they will forever be grateful for their chance meeting, their connection, and years of conversations. Dina said, we still spend hours and hours talking. And Richard said, Dina offering me that pumpkin pie was the start of that conversation, which has now been going on for 24 years. I just got chills. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) I love that. I know. I love that story. I think it's great. Yeah. That's why I always invite strangers over for Thanksgiving. Speaking of which, I've totally forgot – did you see that – you know, we talked about the grandma, the Thanksgiving grandma that invited the teenager over for dinner. And yes. Been, I just saw that um, they're making a movie about it. <gasps> Good. They're, it's, called, they're, it's called Thanksgiving Grandma. <laughs> Is it <laughs> – well, it will workshop that, but <laughs> – Good for them. I hope they make lots of money from it. Me too. Um, so that's yeah, my last that's story. I love it. Um, All right. Well, let's do something dumb and something we love. All right. Okay. Okay. First, I'm going to say the thing I love. The thing I love is pottery. I love pottery. (gasps) I love doing pottery. I'm really excited about pottery. I have a cup for you, Jen. Oh, God. I love watching you make pottery, dude. It's so fun. It makes me so happy. It's so great. It makes me so happy. And so I start – I was like – I just want to do pottery all the time. Maybe I could like get good enough and then I could just do pottery. <laughs> and I'm like having this like – I was like, wouldn't it be an amazing life where I could just do pottery, I could do the podcast, and then I could write like books and stuff when I want, when I want to and then that's it. And that would be like – and then sometimes I could do stand-up because our podcast is so big and then we could just do stand-up. How amazing would that life be? Goals for 2022. Yeah. So that's – my thing is that I think it's dumb that I can't do that. Because wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. <laughs> but also I love doing potter. I'm really obsessed with it. And uh, and, and it's been so nice to have a hobby. I love that you're doing this. It makes me so happy because I know it was something that your mom loved doing. And yeah. I, lo- I love that you love it. I love watching your videos. I can't wait to hold my mug. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you like it. <laughs> I will. I will love it. That makes me happy. Yeah. Um, so what do you do? That's great. Um, for something dumb, I guess. Um, you don't have to do anything dumb. You know, I don't. 
you know, we make the rules. We make the rules. I didn't rules. do anything dumb last week. I'm not going to do anything dumb this week. Yeah. I just want to be positive. For the spirit <laughs> of the holidays, Maybe I won't do Hanukkah. anything dumb unless it's really fucking dumb. <laughs> um, but uh, for something I love, I um, I don't know. I'm just in a good place right now. I feel, um, I feel like things are moving along. I'm getting through the other side of the – um, the last two years that have been rough on everyone, but um, have been rough on me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In so different in, ways. In different ways. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just, yeah, I feel like I'm in a good place. I'm grateful for all my friends. I'm grateful. I love my belly. I love my abs. I love my abdominal. Have you ever seen that commercial? <laughs> no, but I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> no, I don't love my belly or my abs or my abdominal. But I was like, I didn't like, know we were there. No. <laughs> I'm not that evolved. I'll never be that. But um, there's a there's a um, it was an old infomercial for like an ab roller, and the woman oh. would go, "I love my belly. I love my abdominals. I love my belly." <laughs> you said belly twice. I used to think that was hilarious. I'm like, nobody caught that. Nobody caught that. She said the same thing. Three times, and they were like, they were editors, and they were like, yeah. yep, sounds good. Like, she loves it. It's a Cut great endorsement. It, package it, <laughs> put it out there. Let's play Done. it. Done. 27 <laughs> times in an hour. Yep. Um, I always think of that. Um, yep. But, and I wonder where that woman is today. I hope she listens to our podcast. I hope she still loves her belly and her abdominals and her belly. So do I. Maybe she meant like her, her upper belly and her lower belly. I love my belly. I love my abdominals. I love my belly. Um, so that's about it. Also, uh, happy Hanukkah. Uh, it may be yeah. over by the time this airs. I apologize. Yeah. At this point, it is like the seventh day of Hanukkah, I think. Uh, I do go to a Hanukkah menorah lighting oh, cool. thing in Avondale States. It was so nice. It was so fun. And everybody got to light candles. And I remember loving that so much, like going to church services over the holidays and getting to like, you know, when the one person passes the light to the next person until the whole everything's lit up. Uh-huh. And they did that. I remember thinking it was so amazing. And Max was just like, oh, the fire, you know, like he yeah, was so yeah. amazed by it. It was just like really fun to see. So, so yeah. So happy Hanukkah. Awesome. And uh, you guys get in touch with us. We would love that. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, at Dumb Love Podcast. Um, you can rate and review us. That'd be really nice. A nice thing. Nice gift for the holidays. But the best thing you can do is just tell a friend. If you see someone asking on like social media for a podcast rec, why not mention Dumb Love? We'd love that. Let's make Sally's dreams come true for 2022. Yeah, I just want to live a creative life. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> is that too much to ask? No. But also, like, make enough money to live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I want. It's nothing. It's basically nothing. I just want to be really, really rich and happy. I just want to be so rich and happy and do just only the things I want and none of the things I don't want. <laughs> Jen, let's make it happen this year. Oh, let's do it. goals yes thank you guys so much for listening thank you for uh writing to us and uh, messaging us we love to hear from you and just make sure to get out there and do something dumb for love